Good morning, everybody. Okay, Romans chapter 15. Romans 15. We're going to look at the first 13 verses. And they're verses um, that are a continuation of what Paul has been teaching in chapter 14, where he gave us detailed instructions as to how we as a church, we as a as a body of believers, as a family, how we are to handle, how we're to resolve disagreements and issues over opinions. And as I said last week, it's important to, to note that Paul is not talking about sin. He's not talking about the, the key doctrines of our faith but things that are disputable, things of tradition, things that the Bible is not completely clear about. And the context of this, we've got to remember that the church in Rome was, there was a lot of Jewish people there. Um, and these believing Jews, they came from a background, and now as we know, a very religious, a very legalistic um, background. And they struggled, and this is something that we, we, can, we can, some of us might be able to relate to this and, and understand. They struggled to let go of some of these traditions. They're, they struggled to let go of the mosaic traditions, and many of them brought a lot of this legal, legalistic attitude, you know, adhering to the law, the law of Moses. They brought that with them. And then the other side of the camp is that you had people like us, the Gentiles, who came from a, a background of paganism. So these guys, they had very little in the way of tradition. So they brought with them very little religious baggage. And they didn't care about the Sabbath. They, they didn't care about the law regarding what you can and what you cannot eat. You know, you put any food in front of them and they'd eat it you know, with, with, with no issues. But the Jews were watching them, you know, eating the chokes stew or whatever it may be, and they were, it, it was causing a conflict. Um, so, as a result, the weaker believer, and I find it interesting that Paul calls those people who view certain things as sinful, like food and stuff, and what you drink and what you don't. The weaker believer those from a, a legalistic background started to judge and despise those who had freedoms in certain areas. And there are Christians today who would have a legalistic view regarding a variety, a variety of issues. But at the same time, they're disputable. Uh, tattoos, uh, drinking alcohol, um, watching TV, what you can, what you cannot wear, what you can, what you cannot eat. Smoking would be another one of those. And so Paul tells people in both camps that you should not be looking down your noses at each other. You shouldn't be despising one another because none of you, and that includes all of us here, none of us are in a position to judge anybody else when it comes to these matters. In fact, Paul directed the church in Rome to start looking at their own lives, to examine their own hearts, and to see how their attitudes 
how their behaviors are affecting other people within the church. So as a Christian, we have the freedom to practice the things that the Bible does not forbid. But there's one condition, and that's love. And it's a love that asks oneself, is the practice of my freedoms causing other people to stumble? Now, if you have a freedom to do something that others may not have, then you certainly don't flaunt it in their faces because that might cause them to stumble. So there is nothing unclean relating to food or drink. However, if a Christian believes something to be unclean, to be sinful, then it is just that. It is sinful for them. And they're not to partake in something which they believe is sinful. Because what happened? They will feel condemned. So it's sinful for that individual Christian. So Paul here is talking about an individual's conscience. Paul speaks by, about the principle by which we can judge those, those gray areas in our lives. And arguments, disagreements within churches, they nearly always start in these areas, these disputable things, doubtful things. Now remember that Paul, again, he's not talking about sin. Lying, stealing, getting drunk, adultery, sexual immorality, they are and always will be sinful. So again, he's addressing those questionable areas. So in, in Paul's day, it very much surrounded around the consumption of food and drink. So there are situations when you and I must take into account someone's conscience before we exercise our freedoms in Christ. Uh, for example, if you have someone around for a meal, um, don't serve alcohol. Unless you know their past, don't do it because you could stumble them, and it's serious. You know, you could send someone back into a lifestyle of sin. So now in chapter 15, Paul talks about unity among believers, again, within the context of opinions. Unity between the strong believer and the weak believer. And again, when Paul speaks of weakness here, He's not talking about, an, as an individual Christian, his whole walk is weak, just in this one specific area. And this is something that the Lord is so, so concerned about. He wants a unified church. He wants a unified body of believers. Fighting and arguing, people can get that outside, can't they? The world, our communities, they're full of that. So why would we want to bring that into our fellowship? And it's in these first six verses that Paul commands us not to please ourselves. It's not about us. So look at verse 1. We who are strong. Paul was practicing his freedoms in Christ. And, and this is incredible because this is probably one of the most legalistic religious men that you could, pro probably, you could probably meet. He told the church in Philippi, uh, chapter 3, verse 5, he said, I was, I was a Pharisee who demanded the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. Yet Paul, this is interesting, 
Paul is now aligning himself with the Gentiles, with those who were strong in practicing their freedoms in Christ. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. So we have an obligation to put up with the failings of a, of a weak brother or a weaker sister. You know, we cannot say, well, I'm going to eat and drink whatever I want. I'm going to get a tattoo. I'm going to do whatever. If you have a problem with that, then tough luck. You have to put up with it. That's not a loving attitude. Now, I have lots and lots of tattoos, and that is why I wear a long sleeve shirt when I'm preaching, because I don't want to put anybody off. I don't want to stumble somebody. You know, I don't want to distract me to distract, my tattoos to distract from, from God's word. Now, Paul said in 1 Corinthians, he said that love doesn't insist on its own way. And then he says in verse 2, let each of us, uh, let each of us please his neighbor for his good. And what's the purpose? To build him up, to strengthen, to edify one another. Again, Paul can eat and drink whatever he wants. But he decided for the sake of others that he wasn't going to partake in anything that might cause somebody to stumble. So for the sake of another believer, for the sake of building each other up, I must be prepared to lay down my freedoms. Now, as Paul said in the previous chapter, it doesn't mean that I can never partake in these things. Um, but just do them in private. Again, Paul's not talking about sin. If a believer thinks drinking the coffee is a sinful thing, then I'm not going to drink coffee up in their face. But it certainly doesn't mean I'm going to stop drinking coffee altogether, just in their company. Because it's important. And the rule here is once you start involving other people, then you have to start to question your behavior. You need to ask yourself, am I stumbling somebody by eating, by eating this lump of steak? Am I possibly going to stumble somebody by cracking open a can of beer? Because when you do that, when I, when I consider others more important than myself, then I'm going to refuse to do anything. I'm going to refuse to put any obstacle in the way of our fellowship. And that can only be a positive thing. That can only lead to the other person being edified, being built up, being strengthened. Because nothing is going to interfere with our fellowship. And that, you'll agree, is a lot more important than any freedoms that I or you may have. But as Paul says, it also pleases God. So when we... So we are to consider others and disregard our freedoms while all the time looking to Jesus Christ as our absolute perfect example. Verse 3. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, 
he uh, the reproaches of those who reproached, you fell on me. Christ is always our example, isn't he? And nobody has or will ever sacrifice more than what he laid down. Paul is encouraging the church to lay aside their freedoms, to sacrifice them for the greater good. After all, Jesus was willing to sacrifice everything for us. Everything. And just think about that for a moment. As Paul says in his letter to Philippi, Jesus gave up his divine privilege to become what? To become a servant. Christ humbled himself in obedience to God, to his Father, and he died as a criminal on a cross. Jesus took, he took the false allegations, the ridicule, he took the, the beatings, the crown of thorns. He took the cross. He laid down his life. It wasn't taken from him. Don't ever think that the Romans or the Jews took his life because they didn't. He willingly laid it down for the sake of others, for, the, for our sake. He did it for us. And he walked according to his Father's will. So his life was in accordance to what his father wanted, to do, wanted him to do. And he came to please, not himself, but for his dad. John eight twenty nine, For I always do the things that are pleasing to him, referring to his father. So don't you think that you can go easy on a fellow believer who believes that it is sinful to eat meat or drink a coffee or whatever it may be, especially in the light of what Jesus Christ has done for us and the sacrifice that he made on our behalf. It puts it into perspective, doesn't it? The least I can do, the very least, is put the welfare of a weaker brother or sister before my freedoms. Look at verse 4. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. That through endurance, another word here could be patience, and through the encouragement, another word comfort could be used here, of the scriptures that we might have what? Have hope. I have and I will continue to fall short. Yet God has proven himself to be so, so patient and gracious with me. And I know every single person is in the same boat. And the reason why I know that is because we are all sinners saved by his grace. There are no perfect people here. Yet God still comforts us, doesn't he? Paul is asking us to show the same level, level of patience and comfort to those believers who are still immature, who are still growing in the faith. And isn't it wonderful when people cut us a bit of slack? It's great. It makes you feel good. It's encouraging. You know, you're 
you're at a busy junction and you're edging out the car and you're trying to catch eye contact to guilt someone into, into leaving you out and someone eventually does and off you go. It's a great feeling. Give them a wave, everything's great. But do you do the same? It happened to me during the week, and this is why I'm using this as an example. Someone did just that. I was edging out. I was getting a bit cheeky. And your man flashed me. Off I went. Gave him a wave. Delighted with myself. A hundred yards down the road, someone tried to do the same. And I wasn't too impressed. What are you doing, you idiot? Get back in. Yeah, I think he did exactly the same I did. Exactly the same. So the guy behind me showed me grace, and I refused to extend the same. That was you, I apologize. <laughs> God has extended us so much grace. So we have to be doing the same. We have to be doing the same. And in light of what Jesus did for us, it really isn't too much to ask. And remember that our hope is not in the here and now. Our hope is not in this country. It's not in government. Our hope is not in our, our wage packet at the end of the week. Our hope is in the future. Our hope is it's in heaven, isn't it? So why make a big deal of whether we cannot, whether we cannot or can practice our freedoms in Christ? Verse 5. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. So we need to be patient. <clears throat> we need to be encouraging one another. And as Paul said back in chapter 14, we need to steer away from that judgmental uh, heart that we can have. Yeah, how often do we do the opposite? You know, it, it's okay for us to expect perfection from other people, but when it comes to us, we're a lot more forgiving, aren't we? We're a lot, we're a lot easier on ourselves. And that's not Christ's example. We are called as a church to be living in love and peace with each other. And I know that I need a lot of help to be able to do that. And it's a help that is found and supplied by God. God is the source. You might try to do that, love everybody, try to get on with people in your own strength. But eventually, you're going to meet somebody who's just going to push you over the edge where the real you starts to come out, where your flesh retaliates. So it's, and it's the word of God that matures us and equips us to love and to be gracious to one another. Verse 6, that together you may with one voice. So here Paul is talking about this unity. Together you may with one voice glorify the God and, and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is not glorified when we seek to please ourselves. He's not glorified when we have no regard for our weaker brother or sister. Practicing our freedoms in a way 
that might cause them to stumble. Now, we are not always going to agree on certain matters. We're not. There are going to be disputes. Things that the Bible is not completely clear about in its teaching, we are going to disagree on those things, those gray areas. But there is something that every single believer here this morning can agree on, weak and strong alike. And that is giving all glory to God. We can agree on that, can't we? All of us together, united in one voice, praising Jesus. Now in verses 7 to 13, Paul commands us to welcome one another. And this can, this can be difficult for some people. Verse 7. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Now, this takes us back to, to the very first verse of chapter 14, where Paul, Paul declared, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. And then he goes on to say, But not to quarrel over opinions. So we are not just to put up with one another. We're to welcome one another. And this word, it speaks of love, inclusion. It speaks of a, a literal embrace. And that includes those people who have legalistic attitudes regarding things that you just would not think twice about. And when they tell you, oh, that's a sin, it's... It, it's, a, it's an eye-opener. It's a shock to you. So what do you do? Well, you, you certainly don't plan your escape. You don't say, well, how do I get away from this person? You welcome them. And even though a brother in Christ might not have the same freedoms that I enjoy, maybe he cannot drink coffee, or the example I gave last week, eating black pudding, I'm still to welcome them in love. So we need to honor each other's convictions, no matter how stupid that we believe them to be. We must welcome one another because, let's face it, Christ welcomed us, didn't he? Paul told the church in Ephesus, Ephesians 4.32, he said, look, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, Forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. Just as Christ received us, we are to receive one another. And I wasn't in a great position when Christ received me. I wasn't strong. I didn't, I didn't feel blessed. My life was an absolute mess, yet God received me. And we are to do likewise with other believers. And when we do that, once again, Paul says, God is what? He's glorified. Verse 8. For I tell you that Christ became a servant for the circumcised. So Paul is speaking of the Jews here. To show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. So who are the patriarchs? It's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, we went into this a few chapters back. So Jesus came to this earth to fulfill the promise of salvation that God made to the Jewish people. 
Jesus instructed his disciples, Matthew 10. He said, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Again, in Matthew 15, 24, Jesus declared, I was sent only, only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So not to the Gentiles. And Paul echoes this idea about Christ's purpose in the very opening line of this letter, verse 6. Sorry, verse 16 of chapter 1. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And then he says, To the Jew first, then the Gentile. And again, in Paul's letter to the Galatians, He says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. So that means he was born Jewish. Jesus was a Jew. To redeem those who were under the law. So to redeem, to save the Jewish people. So that we might receive adoption as sons. Now you might feel that God is showing partiality to the Jews. But I I would certainly disagree. Because what he's demonstrating here is his righteousness. It's his, his trustworthiness. His truthfulness. If you go all the way back to Genesis, uh, Genesis chapter 12, the first few verses, God made a promise to Abraham. And this is the promise. First he gave him an instruction. He said, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And here's the promise. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you And him who dishonors you, I will curse. That stands today. And here we go. Here's us. And in you, all the families, that's all the Gentiles, me and you, of the earth shall be blessed. Here God is making a promise to the father of the Jewish nation. But notice how he also makes a promise, but it's secondary He makes a promise to the Gentile nations, to all the families of the earth. But it was only going to happen through the Jewish people. Now, I know we covered this in great detail a few weeks back. All the apostles were Jewish. All the first believers, first Christians were what? They were Jewish. We have been so blessed by the Jewish people, by the Jewish nation. And this is why scripture speaks about Jesus going to the Jew first and then to us, to the Gentile. The first promise made was to the Jews. But it was through the Jewish people that God, as I said, fulfills his secondary promise. But you know, let's face it. None of us deserve to be saved. Jew or Gentile, none of us. And as Paul said earlier in this letter, we have all sinned. And we all fall short of the glory of God. 
every single one of us, Jew and Gentile alike. Paul told us back in chapter 10 that there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. So as far as salvation is concerned, Jew and Gentile are saved in the very same way through Jesus Christ. Chapter 10, verse 12 of Romans. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call upon him. And again in verse 13 of chapter 10, Paul quoted from the Old Testament. He quoted from the prophet Joel. He said, for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Everybody. And hasn't this been God's message from the very beginning? So there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile. Anyone can, get, can be saved. Anyone can call upon the name of the Lord. And Jesus guarantees us. He says that you will be saved, but it's by faith. It's not by what we have to do. It's what Jesus has already done for us. And because salvation is not by works, not by something that you do to earn it, but by faith, because of that, that's why everybody can be saved. That's the message of the gospel. And it's the very message that we have been called to proclaim. And if you're, you're not a believer here this morning, then ask yourself, what am I waiting for? On the cross, Jesus bore your sin and mine. And is the cross where we are redeemed. It's where our debt to God, our sin, is cancelled. And when you, by faith, receive the sacrifice that Jesus Christ has made for you, then and only then will you be given the gift of eternal life. Then and then can you call yourself a child of God. But before we move on to the next verse, look with me again at verse 8. For I tell you that Christ became a servant. And Jesus, he, he described himself as just that, a servant to the Jewish people. And this is what Jesus said in Luke twenty-two twenty-seven. He said, for who is the greater? One who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? It is not the one who reclines at the table. But I am among you as the one who serves. He came as a servant. Remember how he washed the feet of his disciples. Demonstrating to them what it actually means to be a servant is to put other people first. And it's who we as, as a church have been called to be. Christ is our example. Now Paul pre proves that it was always God's plan to save the Jewish people and then incorporate saved Gentiles into his promises. It's always been the plan. And he does this by choosing Old Testament prophecies, four in total, that speak of salvation for the Gentiles. Now, this would have probably puzzled a lot of Jews. 
you know, how can a, how can a Gentile be, be saved? Because they don't have the law. They don't have circumcision. But in fact, God's plan that Jew and Gentile will come together to glorify him. Verse 9. And in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it is written. Now Paul quotes from the Psalms. Psalm 18.49. Therefore I will, pl- I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing your name. And David saw the Jewish people standing side by side with Gentile praising God. Something that could only happen by way of the cross. Now Paul quotes quotes from Deuteronomy 32.43 in verse 10. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people, with the Jews. Once again, an Old Testament scripture showing that the Gentile peoples will join God's people in worshipping him, in praising God, side by side, worshipping their king. Now in verse 11, he quotes from Psalm 117, verse 1, where David calls all peoples. Now all peoples would have been a, a common Old Testament reference to us, to the Gentiles. Verse 11, and again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. So, Gentiles are called to worship God, which is only possible because God has blessed the Jewish people first. And then in verse 12, Paul quotes from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 11, verses 10 to 12. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. So this is a prophecy about Israel's coming Messiah. A Messiah who would come from the family of Jesse. And as we know, Jesse was David's father. So a Messiah would be a servant. The Messiah would lay down his life for all peoples. And again, it's been God's promise, it's been God's guarantee from the very start to save mankind. From Genesis to Revelation, it is his objective. Paul wrote in 2 Peter 3, 9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness but is patient toward you. So God is patient to this world. Why? Because he doesn't want anybody to perish. And that's what Paul says here. But for all to reach repentance. God wants everyone to be saved. He wants to forgive all people through his son, Jesus Christ. So there should be no division between believers between the Jewish and Gentile believers of Rome. Paul said in Romans 12, 5, So it is with Christ's body, we are many parts of one body, and we all belong to each other. We belong to each other. We're family. Like all family, there will be disputes, there will be disagreements, but it's just an opportunity for us to forgive one another. 
to show love and grace and mercy towards one another. Now, finally, verse 13. Paul now concludes with a prayer, a benediction. Verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Paul here is, is, is calling upon the God of hope to fill us with joy and peace in believing. A joy and peace that comes when you and I trust God. And it, it's a supernatural hope that comes through the power of the Holy Spirit. And what more could we, you and I ask for? than to be filled with joy and peace and to be abounding in hope. People chase these things in this world and yet here is God offering it to us through faith in him and his promises. Amen? So as the worship team comes up, I remind you that the elements of communion are down the back and up here in the front. As Jesus said, when you take communion, he said, do this in memory of me. So let's remember the sacrifice that he, that he made for us as we take communion. So let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, we, we thank you that we're one body. We thank you that we're one people in your Son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray for the unity of this church. I pray that we will put you first, Father God, that we will put others ahead of ourselves, especially when it comes to our freedoms in you, Jesus. And Lord, if any of us have any, any bad blood, any grudges against someone here today, then Lord, we ask you that we that you would forgive us, Lord, that we lay it at the foot of your cross. Lord, help us to love one another. Help us, Lord, to, to welcome one another, Lord, and not just put up with each other. And Jesus, you said yourself, as people will know that we belong to you by the way that we love one another. And we pray for that love here this morning, Lord. We know that it has to come from you, Lord, that we don't have it. We cannot manufacture it ourselves, Lord. It cannot come from our, our flesh or our good intentions. So Holy Spirit, we pray, for, we pray for a fresh baptism of you, Lord, that you will fill us with the fruits of your spirit, Lord. And again, we just thank you for this day, how blessed we are, and how truly wonderful it is that we can lift our voices, Lord, and worship you. Amen.